thank you for spending some of your time on, on Easter Sunday with us. We are so grateful that you're here. And uh, it's, been a, it's been a great week for a lot of us. Uh, this is what we call Holy Week. And uh, it's not just about Easter. It's about a journey that recognizes Jesus' last days and his sacrifice uh, that he made for us and, and uh, driven by love. And so for a lot of us, uh, this started actually Monday morning. We did these little Facebook Live devotionals, and thanks for all the encouraging words you guys uh, gave to us as we did those. Then we did the Seder Thursday night, which was a, which was a rich uh, remembrance and a contextualization, if you will, of, of something we call communion. We, d- we do here uh, quite often at E3, but that comes from the Passover celebration. So Pastor Mark walked us through that. We went into a, a, a prayer vigil where uh, we stayed up all night long as a church and prayed. And uh, that was very, very rich and meaningful for me. Uh, I prayed in some of the overnight hours, and it was so cool to see people who hadn't even signed up just roll in at 4 a.m. Uh, that was my first slot. And, and just pray, man. And, or maybe they were sleeping. I don't know. But they looked like they were praying. Um, and then uh, we, we capped off the journey with our, our worship gathering on Friday night called Tenebrae or the service of shadows, and it was just a powerful meditation on the cross. But now we're here. We're here. It's Sunday. You guys look marvelous. Like you clean up really well. Um, my wife bought this shirt for me. I let her dress me on Easter, on, on Easter Sunday, and on uh, Christmas Eve. So she did great. So um, what I want to do is is just give us a little bit of understanding and uh, of what Easter means to a lot of us, you know, that it's not just a day that we dress up. It's not just a day that we eat with our families. It's not just a day uh, that we get maybe Easter baskets. It has a deeper and very, very uh, powerful potential uh, to change our lives forever. And so I want to do that. But before we do that, I want to actually show you guys something. So John's going to um, this is one of my, uh, you guys know that like in my secret superhero life, I was and am a musician, right? So I, guitar player, and, and uh, this is one of, my, one of my favorite guitars, one of my prized guitars. Uh, this is a Fender, uh, it's called a 1952 reissue. Um, it's, um, it's probably one of the best guitars I own. It's one of my favorite ones to play. And I want to tell you the story of, of how this guitar came into my life. It came into my life about, I don't know, 17 years ago. And um, in 1997, I wanted this guitar more than anything uh, else in my musical world, right? Uh, uh, it looks like the guitar that Springsteen plays. It was a big idol of mine. Um, my favorite bands at the time, like the Counting Crows, like they played something similar. You know, guys in Pearl Jam played. Man, I wanted one of these so bad. But like a lot of young married people, right, the, the want was up here. The fundage was like down here, right? So, um, so for a while, what I decided to do was to buy a, a, less, a less expensive version of one. You know, they have some that are made in Mexico or, or overseas that are not quite as well made, but, you know, it still looked cool. And, and for me, rock and roll was about looking cool as much as it was sounding good. And so I was making plans to buy uh, an, a lesser expensive version of, of something, of a Telecaster that I could afford. But, 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 little did I know that at the time, some people in the community 
that my wife and I were a part of were conspiring. And they were whispering their little secrets back and forth because they knew how bad I wanted one of these. Here, John, you, you can go ahead and take this. Um, uh, they knew how bad I wanted one of those. And somehow they talked to my wife and she said, yeah, he's planning on buying you know, a lesser expensive version of it. And, and my community said, you know what? Let's, let's get together, uh, unbeknownst to Eric, and let's buy him the guitar. And so a good friend of mine pointed this up, and they, they sneakily made sure that Shana knew exactly what I wanted. And so this, uh, we, we had a Saturday evening gathering, and we always ate dinner together. And so I walked into the dinner area, and there was a case sitting there. And I, that's my daughter, Emily. And if you guys know Emily, that's her. Um, and so uh, this is the moment that the guitar was given to me. There's the next slide that has it as well. Um, that's the guy that, that pointed up the project. And I'm just blown away, right? And so then that's me, tags on it and everything. Um, so that was an amazing surprise, right? And I don't know if you've ever gotten uh, just a really unexpected gift. But what I want to do is, is walk through what it means to get really, really surprised. Because I want to suggest to you that a surprise carries with it a certain like emotional process because like when I walked into that when I walked into that dinner area and I saw the case there is a, a sense of excitement but there's also a sense of uncertainty I don't know if you've ever had like a surprise party given to you there's the moment of like oh my gosh what is happening right and uncertainty and a little bit of shock because like I think most of it if you're like me we like to live our lives kind of in control and kind of knowing what's happening one minute to the next. But the very nature of a surprise, right, is it interrupts that flow, does it not? And all of a sudden, things aren't the same anymore. And all of a sudden, we have to reevaluate our view of the world. See, my view of the world, to put it very simply, was before that moment, no telecaster for Eric. Before that moment, um, I was going to have to try and figure out how to sell body parts or something in, in order to get that guitar. And, and then in a very brief couple minutes my reality was utterly different, right? That's what a surprise does. It throws us into chaos. We're not sure of what's up or down anymore, and then we process the information. And the reason I tell you that story is because um, the way we celebrate Easter now, with uh, dressing nice and complimentary coffee and lilies and, 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 and music and, and celebration, uh, what's interesting to me is that if you read the gospel accounts of the resurrection, they don't look like that. They are marked by, at the very least, surprise. At, uh, at the other end of the spectrum, they are marked by chaos and uncertainty and what I'm calling it today in a very theological, technical term, freaked outness. <laughs> and so, in fact, this, this week I read all the gospel accounts uh, just to kind of uh, let it marinate in my soul. And I ranked the four Gospels, the four stories of Jesus' life, in order of freaked outness in regards to the resurrection. So the end of Mark, the end of Mark ends very uncertainly. You know, Mark has two endings on it, and the more reliable ending is the shorter ending. And it just ends with the women who came to the empty tomb. They're just running away frightened. They're freaked out. Uh, Luke 
They go through that freaked out uh, uh, phase, but the women kind of get their bearings. They go tell the disciples. The disciples have this process of first they don't know what's going on, but they come to terms with it. And then Jesus uh, appears to them and helps them navigate that. Matthew, a little more, uh, a little more of a tighter process, but there's still that moment of uncertainty, that moment when the women go to the tomb and they're like, what's happening? And then finally, John, which is where um, God really led me to. Same thing. Women come to the tomb. There is this moment of uncertainty, of surprise, of which end is up. And then they navigate through that, and uh, they, they come to terms with, with what that means, right? And so it's very different than way, the way we celebrate it, but it, it not necessarily it shouldn't be. Because I think that sometimes we should lean into what exactly was so surprising about the empty tomb besides a dead person that was no longer dead, right? That's a lot. I get it. But there's more. There's so much more. So what I want to do is walk through a couple scriptures. Um, one of the earliest leaders of the church was a guy named Paul. And Paul was a brilliant theologian already as a Jewish believer, and then he had this radical encounter with Jesus, and he, he set that mind and that heart and that, that soul, he set it to work on, on figuring out what exactly happened in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. He's one of the earliest writers and, ref, and, and reflectors, if you will, of the meaning of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So uh, I actually want to start today in one of his letters that he writes to a church in Corinth. Now, this is an early, early letter from the church or, and to the church. It might actually even predate the Gospels. So even before the Gospel writers wrote their accounts, Paul has written this. And so listen to these two uh, verses out of here. Paul starts in this section in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, look, I received, for what I received, I passed on to you as first importance, first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Kephas, which is another name for Peter. We're going to talk about Peter a little bit. And then to the 12, the 12 closest followers of Jesus. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. That's Bible talk in this case for people who have died since then. Then he appeared to James, Jesus' brother, then to all the apostles, the messengers of God, and then Paul says, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. I want to just land on that abnormally born uh, comment because it, it tells something about what Paul and the early believers were going through. You see, some, some of you guys might have heard this translated as a one born at the wrong time. And some, in, in, in that case, Paul would be saying, look, I wasn't born uh, and I wasn't around early enough to follow Jesus with the original 12. I came late to the party. And Paul had a radical encounter with, with Jesus that changed his thinking about who he was. But the Greek there actually leads us down an interesting line of thinking because abnormally born, is a great translation of that. And, and the, the word, the Greek word that is used there is ektrauma. And if you know anything about the healthcare profession, trauma 
has to do with wounds, and it has to do with, uh, you know, bleeding and stuff. And so that line of thinking would say Paul is actually referring to a traumatic birth experience. Like one theologian says, actually, that Paul's actually talking about what it might look like if you were to have a, a cesarean C-section uh, of an of a infant, of a, a fetus at the time. And the image that Paul's, Paul's uh, conjuring up for us is that moment when you take the baby from the mother, and all of a sudden, they're in a new reality. I've never seen a C-section. I saw my children being born. And so I can only imagine it's even more kind of, you know, that moment when, hey, I was in the womb, and now I'm not. And you see their eyes, like, struggle, and they're, they're trying to make sense of, hey, I was in this warm, comfortable reality, and now there's, I'm, I'm naked, there's nurses, they're, they're, swat, they're swatting me on the behind, all this stuff is happening, right? And, and the child, the fetus, is just, like, making sense of what's happening. How do I adjust to this new reality? And Paul's just saying, look, that's what it was like. The resurrected Jesus blew my mind. And it changed my paradigm. It changed the place that I lived even from one space to another space. And I'm trying to blink and, and, and wrap my head around it. You see, Paul was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. All Jesus' first followers were Jews. And the Jews had an idea about the resurrection. They had a hope. They called it um, the age to come. And uh, we would know it as the new creation, and the Hebrew phrase for it is, is olam hadash. Let me hear you say olam hadash. Little, little lower pitch. One more time. Come on. That's right. Yes, it's, it's a gutter. It comes from here. So uh, the Jewish folks, Paul included, look, they had a hope for the resurrection. They had a dream for what they called the age to come. They had a dream for what would be called the new creation. And, and the dream, just, just summarizing and paraphrase, it looks a little bit like this. In the age to come, God would be king. He would be king. And no one who, who had any inkling would doubt that. So people would live according to God's rules. In the age to come, sins would be forgiven. God would just say, you know, everything you've ever done, it's taken care of. And in the age to come, there would be a, a notion of the great reversal. The way Jesus put it is, the last would be first, and the first would be last. And in, and in the age to come, everybody would live uh, according to God's rules, marked by compassion and understanding and justice and, and, and beauty. And so this is what they were all hoping for. Paul says uh, in, in, again, another letter to the same church, he says it this way, which is going to hint, going to lead us to the text in, in John where Paul says, look, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. Paul's not just talking there, by the way, about the new creation as you're a new creation. Paul's pronouncing something grand about the nature of reality itself. And he said, look, if Christ has been resurrected and if you are in Christ, guess what? The new creation, the age to come, the kingdom of God is on. It is on. And nothing 
is the same anymore. So with that kind of a holding there, I want to go to John's gospel. And I want to just walk you through the experience of these first uh, disciples as they encounter the tomb. And I want to walk you through something that John does that I think is so, so very cool. You see, uh, we've, we've talked about this before here at E3. The, the writer of the Gospel of John, John himself, he has a really amazing literary style. He starts his gospel like this. Um, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, with God, and the Word was God. Now, if you know your Bible, you know that that is the same way the whole Bible actually begins. It's the same way that Genesis 1 begins. Genesis 1 reads this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So John, right from the get-go, says, you know what? There's something about this good news. There's something about this Jesus that has something to do with creation. And then John goes on, and and he actually lays his, his gospel out. He lays his book out according and paralleling creation. John does it according to what he calls signs. So in in the Gospel of John, he has these uh, six or seven, there's seven signs in in the Gospel of John. The first sign is just declared, Jesus turns water into wine. Amen, Jesus. Love that Jesus. Second sign, he heals the official son in John 4. Third sign, he heals a paralyzed man, John 5. Some theologians differ over the next couple signs, but I'm going to suggest that the feeding of the 5,000 and walking on water are actually a unified sign. The fifth sign is Jesus heals a man born blind. The sixth sign that parallels the sixth day of creation is the raising of Lazarus. Who knows what was created on the sixth day in Genesis? People. So theologians point to this and they say, man, the sixth day, the sixth sign in John's gospel, he raises a human being to life. The sixth day of creation, God creates human beings. So John is pushing this agenda of paralleling, paralleling Genesis. Now, the seventh day of Genesis, God does what? He rests. He's a Sabbath. If you you follow this line of thinking, What theologians would say is that the seventh day in John's gospel is actually the crucifixion. When God essentially rests because his son is being crucified. And in a sense, God is silent in a way. And so the seventh day of of John's gospel ends with the crucifixion. Which leads us to the question of, in John's gospel, what happens after the seventh day. What happens after the seventh day? Seventh day in Genesis, God rests, and then that's the end of the story. John has a different agenda. Just after the story of Jesus' crucifixion, he's laying in the tomb. Listen to the first words that follow Jesus laying in the tomb. In John 20, verse 1, early On the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb 
and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So, after the seventh day in John, guess where we're at again? We're on the first day. Let me read to you again what, how Genesis 1 begins. Genesis 1. In the beginning, on the first day, God created the heavens and the earth. Next verse. Now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So as Genesis unfolds, we unfold on the first day of the week in darkness. John says, on the first day of the week, it was still dark and Mary goes to the tomb. I think what John is getting at is he's saying, hey, guess what? You know that Genesis story? You know that, you know that creation story? Guess what? It's starting over. And this time, it's different. We're in new territory now. Paul would say it, we're not in the old creation part anymore. Now we're in the new creation. And then John goes on and he tells the story. Uh, Mary goes running to Simon Peter and the other disciple. This was, most people think this is John, the author of the gospel, the one that Jesus loved and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. It's the surprise. The shock. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter. Don't know why that's there. And reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, because Simon Peter is always like the first apostle. He's the first disciple. Then Simon Peter came along behind him because he was slow and went straight into the tomb. And he saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. What John is describing here is actually, the, the idea is that the linen is not just like cast asunder. It's not ripped up and thrown. It is like Jesus made his bed. The linen is, is neatly placed. The cloth that was over his head is set, not destroyed. There's something intentional about it. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. Listen, he saw and what? He believed. They still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Okay, so there's the surprise. There's the shock. Listen to what John does next. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, God's messengers, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? She still cannot wrap her head around this. They've taken my Lord away, she said. I don't know where they have put him. At this, at this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. There's something different about him now. And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener. She said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. So I always just thought this was like one of these crazy little Bible things, like why the gardener? Why? I mean, the tomb might have been in a garden, but it's, well, 
Let's go back to Genesis again, the creation story. What does God do on the sixth day of creation? He creates humanity. A guy named Adam. In Genesis 2.15, you know what Adam's job was? He was a gardener. And so Mary says, when she says, I think you're the gardener, basically she's saying, are you, are you the same as the first creation? Are we still in the old way of doing things? Are we still in the old kingdom? Spoiler alert, we're not in the old kingdom anymore because Jesus ain't no gardener. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned to him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus says, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. What John's trying to tell you and what John's trying to tell me and tell all of us is, look, when Jesus is resurrected, the age to come is on. And all the things that go with the age to come are now in play. God is now king. God is now king. Our sins are forgiven. Yeah, amen. And the great reversal, the last, first, the first, last, it's on. This is not something we are waiting for. The resurrection changes cosmically everything about our reality. It might take us a lifetime to come to terms with that, but let me tell you, that is the realest real thing you will hear today. We are living now in the age to come. So let me just close by, uh, by kind of asking you guys where you might be at. Because the story has all these little characters in it. And I just want to kind of close by by asking you, you today, like, where you might f- find yourself in this story, all right? Maybe you're the gospel writer, John. Maybe you're, you got to the tomb first. And maybe you looked into the tomb and you're like, I believe. I'm faster than Peter, and I believe faster than Peter. <laughs> so maybe you're here and you're like, man, sign me up. I am there. Guess what? God bless you. We're thankful for you. We're thankful for you. Maybe you find yourself like in a place like maybe like like the like Mary, who like you come in and you're like I can't wrap my head around this. I'm, it's shocking. It doesn't make sense. But at the same time, you're like, well, somebody's got to know about this, so I've got a job to do, and you're figuring it out. But Mary's. In all the Gospels, the women are the, are the ones who tell the guys about the resurrection. 
So maybe you're in this space and you're like, you know what? It's surprising. I'm trying to wrap my head around it. But you know what? Until I completely understand it, I am still serving here. You are welcome in this place. We are thankful for your service. Maybe you're like Peter. I don't mean like you can't run fast. I mean, if you know Peter's story, as Jesus is being arrested, Peter has this moment where people say, hey, aren't you, aren't you with that guy that was being arrested? And you know what Peter does? He says, I don't know him. I have nothing to do with him. And they go, wait, but wait a minute. We saw you with him. No, no, no. That's not me. So maybe you're here today and you, you would identify with Peter. And you would say, you know what? I kind of know who Jesus is at one point in my life. I hung out with him a little bit. But at some point in my life, I have betrayed him. I have denied him. Somewhere, somehow, somebody came to me and said, hey, aren't you a church person? Aren't you a Jesus person? Nope. I don't, I don't know who you're talking about. Well, guess what? You're welcome here. Because the age to come says that all are welcome and sins are forgiven. And John's gospel actually has this beautiful restoration of Peter, where Jesus pulls him aside and says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord. And he's asked him that three times, and he welcomes him back into the fold. If you've betrayed Jesus, you're in the right place today. Because the truth is, all of us have probably at some point. So you're welcome and hang out with us. And then uh, the last is uh, maybe you're like the rest of the disciples. If you ever read the resurrection accounts, they're hilarious. Like they're just, the women say, they're like, Jesus, is, Jesus has come and he's raised himself from the dead. And some of them are like, that's cool, man. Like, we'll get there later. And it takes them a long time to understand what has happened. They're skeptical even. They're skeptical. One of them, Jesus actually shows up. I can't believe the guy had the guts to do this to Jesus. And Jesus is like, hey, guys, I'm back from the dead. And one guy named Thomas is go, goes, show me your wounds. <laughs> Maybe you're here today and you're like, you know what? I would consider myself a skeptic. I do not believe yet. Maybe you would even say, prove it. Which is kind of what Thomas said. Guess what? You're welcome here. Because my Jesus, he does doubt pretty well. You want to check Jesus out, stay in this community for the next few weeks. See if you don't find out who this Jesus is. Christ is risen. The age to come is here. All we have to do is live in it. Amen. Thank you.